Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We talk today to Paul Cronin, who is the CEO of Adriatic Metals. They are a polymetallic asset holder in Bosnia-Herzegovina. We talked to him about his business plan and how he's managed to deliver the company through to where they are today, which is PFS stage, but rapidly moving through feasibility and delivering DFS by the end of this year. They're fully funded to be able to do that. We talked to him about the use of proceeds throughout the rest of this year. Paul does enjoy a bit of drilling and some of the numbers that have come out so far have been quite impressive. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, Paul. How are you, sir? Yeah, very well, Matthew. Yourself? Yeah, not, not, not bad. You, you look very lonely there. You're in the office by yourself. I am. I am in the office by myself and have been for two weeks. It's great. <laughs> do whatever I want I can talk to myself yell at myself oh you must be awesome you must be delighted to uh, be speaking to us there something to do right and where's everyone else just working yeah no it's great is everyone working from home working from home uh yeah everyone's working from home we've got people obviously in Bosnia who can't travel um uh we've got people here who can't travel to Bosnia um but all of our staff here are uh you know honoring social distancing guidelines and and working from home yeah okay okay okay, okay. or they just don't like me I'm not sure it could be. It could be both. It could be both. <laughs> oh, so Bosnia Herzegovina. I mean, I, I only ever hear that phrase when it's the uh, Eurovision Song Contest. Where's the Herzegovina bit come in? I long forgot. Well, Herzegovina I, I probably is want essentially the Croatian, the Croatian part of Bosnia. Um, right. So, um, you know, Bosnia is essentially three large ethnic communities: Serb, Croat, and, and Bosnia. Um, Bosnia and Herzegovina is essentially the the Bosniak Croat uh, part of the country, and then you've got the Republic of Serbska. So there's sort of two main entities. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's a beautiful place. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I first went there in the in the late 1990s um, uh, to see the company transform. Since then, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 Agree with you. But um, got friends there. Um, why don't we kick off with a one-minute overview for everyone who may be new to this story, and then we'll pick it up from there. Sure. Look, Adriatic Metals, brand new company incorporated specifically to buy these assets in, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We had some historical data. We didn't have any physical data. We had to go in and test it. We did that. We had a hunch of what might be there. Fortunately for us, the drill bit proved that we were right. Um, since then, we've been actively exploring on the properties, drilling it. We've expanded the tenement boundaries of our licenses, which is difficult to do in Bosnia. We've achieved that. Um, we've put out a, a maiden resource. We've done an, uh, an initial scoping study. We've done our first phase of metallurgical work. And what we have now is a really good economic deposit. Our challenge here is to grow it to be a tier one deposit. Absolutely. And over the next 12 months or less, uh, that's what we intend to do. Beautiful. So it's, it's a polymetallic deposit, and we'll get into what exactly that means for you in a second. But can, if I can, can I just start off and get an idea of what it was that you originally set out to do? You said you, you set up this company specifically to acquire these assets, but what was the plan? What, did you, what, what was the vision you saw? 
When the assets were brought to me um, in the, in toward the end of 2016, uh, I saw an opportunity to take an existing um, producing asset and put it back into production. But I also saw that there was opportunity for exploration in an area where I thought there might be a high grade deposit, but I didn't have enough data to know what it was. We did some some reasonably crude calculations on resources at the time. We said, look, there's probably enough here to make this work. Um, you know, if this area called Rapitsu is only one and a half million tonnes or so, you know, you should be able to extract that easily, combine it with the lower grade Beavatcher deposit, put it through a plant at Beavatcher and everything will work swimmingly. Um, you'll have yourself, a, you know, a small mine for, for 10 or 12 years. That business plan um, was amended very, very quickly. Um, and I can tell you it was probably on about the 27th of August, 2017. Roughly. Um, <laughs> roughly. Um, well, what happened on that I, date uh, that when you I remembered it? That's amazing. Well, that was uh, that was a Saturday morning where I checked my email and I found uh, from our head of exploration the results for our first drill hole at Rapitza. Um And we drilled through 64 metres, uh, 34% zinc equivalent, um, making it one of the best drill holes I'd ever seen. Truly polymetallic, but what blew me away was the gold and the copper um, grades in there. Um, just looking at that one hole, you know, if it was a resource, you would have economic zinc, economic lead, economic gold, economic silver, economic copper and economic barrett. Um, but we had all of them. We then drilled our second hole. And this was, um, this is where I stopped pretending I was a geologist. Um, and I said to the guys, you know, let's drill this next hole 60 meters that way and see if we can step this thing right out. Um, because that was in the direction of the strike, looking at the historical data, looking at this one hole that we drilled. And we drilled it out to the east and uh, drilled it down. And, you know, a week later, I get a call from the head of exploration. He says, mate, I'm at 330 metres and I've got nothing. And I thought, no, no, you, you sure? He said, no, I've got nothing, absolutely nothing. I thought, right, this is a bit of a blow. Um, what I probably need to do is step back and get a little bit more realistic about what this could be you know is it only a one and a half million ton deposit so we had a limited budget it was still a private company at that point we put in another six holes um but all six of those holes actually hit thick high grade mineralization not quite the extent of the first hole but we would see between 20 and sort of 60 meters between 25 and 35 percent zinc equivalent we still like what we saw and what as we started to look at that and we looked at the historical data uh, we looked at the the core that we were seeing from our own drilling program. We recognised that the what we thought the deposit was doing was probably wrong, but we would need a lot more money to be able to give this thing the attention it deserved. And so we decided to keep you know the company public. Um, uh, we decided on the ASX, even though we're a British company. Um, London doesn't typically support you know, early stage exploration well. Um, we made the decision to go to the ASX. Um, we listed there as a foreign issuer, uh, raised 10 million Australian dollars, uh, and then just got stuck in. And, uh, you know, at that point, when we first started seeing the holes of that 2018 program, um, it was clear that this, this had the potential to be quite a significant discovery. Um, and it was at that point I said, right, well, we've got to start looking at how this this whole company is going to look and feel and be managed and think about what it should look like when we get to production. 
And I immediately started looking at how we were going to evolve the board. You know, we brought in a good chairman, Peter Bilby from Independence Group. Um, Peter's probably one of the most respected guys in the Aussie mining industry. Uh, we brought in Julian Barnes, uh, a British geo who was head of exploration for DPM. So did a lot of work in the region. Um, you know, basically a walking encyclopedia of every mining project in the world. Um, both Peter and Julian did their own due diligence before they came on board. But immediately I started looking to, you know, to how the company was going to evolve in two or three years time and how we were going to evolve the board, how we were going to evolve the management team, putting in some of the structures that we need in terms of human resource planning, how we're going to compensate staff, how we're going to train them um, to basically build a proper operating team in a jurisdiction which hadn't really done um, base or precious metals mining, with the exception of some existing mines owned by another British company called Neco, uh, hadn't really done that in about 25 years. Um, and so we, was, we were working through all of that. And and as a board, I think we really focused on you. What do we now need to think about in the next step? We've dealt with what's going to happen in six months' time. Now let's deal with what's going to happen in 12 months' time. And I think one of the best things we did um, quite early on was we brought in a, um, a London-based consultancy company called Critical Resource. Um, Critical Resource do a lot of work for banks and mining companies on uh, ESG initiatives, corporate governance, um, uh, you know, social responsibility, etc. And we said to them, you know, can you come in and actually do a bit of an audit of the project for us? Not just what we've been doing and the way we've been interfacing with the project, but also in terms of the local community, where we were, the history of the country, some of the unique characteristics um, of Bosnia as a result of the conflict um, back in the early 1990s. Um, and, and they gave us a, a pathway, um, you know, for a social license that we've been following like a rule book, uh, essentially. And a lot of the work that we've been doing this year has been implementing a lot of the things that they've said, you know, these potentially could be challenges for you in the future. Look at the way you interface with your local community. Look at how you do your employment, your um, compensation structures, how you're going to develop four or 500 people. Um, you know, Varish was a was a mining town. It was, it was a town started to service a mine back in the 1890s. Um, and so there was mining in the blood there, but a lot of the skills had lost, had been, had, had left. Um, the population of Varish at the outbreak of the Bosnian conflict was about 32,000 people. Today it's six. Um, and so, you know, we started looking at all of these things that we can do. Um, you know, some of it involved just pretty basic sponsorships where we started immersing ourselves in the local community. Which um, local suppliers can we use? Where do we recruit our staff? Uh, so we started forming relationships with universities and saying, well, you know, we need to hire geologists, you know, can we have all of your geologists come to site and do some work experience? We can evaluate them and we'll hire a couple every year. And we've been doing that. And we're working with the municipal state-owned corporations to do our track construction, pad construction, um, helping us with some of the building works on site. We've constructed our own core sheds and operating offices and whatnot. And all of that um, has really sort of made the relationship we have particularly at the municipal level, almost symbiotic. Um, the, the municipality knows who we are. Um, we need them and they need us. Uh, and that has been, I think, the reason why 
we've been able to do what we wanted to do so quickly in Bosnia, where other companies often complain about the bureaucracy of a former, you know, Soviet or um, Yugoslav country. Uh, we've actually found the government to be really cooperative, really helpful, um, always looking for solutions to what you want to do. And that's been, that's helped us really sort of shape that strategy. So look, you know, we're actually doing really well here. Um, the people like us, the government seem to like us. Um, this is a fundamentally underexplored country in that they've got a, a, a mining concession law, which pretty, pretty much blocks the entry for anybody um, because the costs of getting a new mining concession up front are so high, they act as a barrier to entry. We've used all of those relationships with government to sort of lobby to say, you know, how about, could this be done? Could that be done, you know? Um, and as a result, you know, we've now expanded our concessions once. We're looking to do that again. Um, we've collected a lot of information, most of which we found by chance. Um, when we went to the Via Vacha site to start renovating the old administration block as a, as a core shed and site office, um, we found thousands of reports scattered all over the ground where someone had come in and decided the filing cabinets were worth something, but all of the contents of them weren't. How wrong they um, were. How wrong literally they were. Throw, it, throw it on the floor. Yeah. And it, whilst it's taken us a couple of years to go through all of that, mm. uh, we've now got a database um, that includes a lot of information on our existing concessions. It also includes a lot of information on deposits that are not on our concessions. And the strategy now is very much about how do we take advantage of that first mover um, situation we found ourselves in to continue to grow, uh, grow our, our land holdings in the country, continue to develop the team of people that we've got doing exploration, our technical knowledge uh, of these deposits in this in this area mm. uh, near Varish, um, and all of the relationships that we're now forming with the metallurgical labs, with uh, the local community uh, with the transportation companies, electricity and everything else. Beautiful. And, and that, is, that is very much driving our strategy at the moment. That is a fantastic you know, historical run through. I think you might need to wave your arms. The lights have gone off behind you. But, <laughs> but, but of yoga whilst being interviewed, right? Um, th thanks for that background. I think that, that's really helpful, you know, historical background as, as to how you've got to where you are. But I and I do I want to get into the strategy of how you, how you're going to deliver that. But that takes money. So if you don't mind, can we just run through some of the numbers first? You know, first of all, I need to say nice steady growth in, in share price. You know, since you've been doing this, a general trend is up. Um, bar obviously the most recent financial reset in the global market. So we're gonna we're gonna ignore that for now. Um, how much money have you raised in total and, and put into this company and what have you done with it? Yeah, look, in total, we've raised um, about 50 million Australian dollars. Right. Um, so that was through the IPO, we did 10. Uh, we did another 10 uh, in October or November 2018. And we raised $25 million in November 2019, um, just before the current uh, crash. So we're very fortunate to have done that. Good timing. Um, what we have done with it mm -hmm. is drilled a lot of meters. Um, so we've now drilled over 35,000 meters. Um, we're now about 3,000 meters into the next 20,000 meter program. 
Um, but at the same time, we've invested a lot of money into new concessions. So the, the concession fees in Bosnia are very high. Um, so we've invested money in, in acquiring new concessions. We've invested money in um, training of our people in systems. Um, we've developed a working office uh, in Barish on the old site. Um, but fundamentally, where we've been spending money are things like LIDAR surveys, which have proved to be invaluable to us. Um, we've done a lot of metallurgical test work because polymetallic deposits are you know, notorious for looking really great on paper. But when you get down to try and putting them into production, you know, I do want to get into that. I do want to get into that, yeah. that, that for sure. So you've you got, so that's, you've raced 45, I guess there was five went in while you were private. Is that what you're suggesting? To get yeah, to that 50 that. number, right? A little, little under that, yeah. Yeah, okay. So 50 million bucks, you've taken it through the traditional value curve and, and, and drilling, putting out results. You, your report says you're fully funded through to completion of a BFS, which is, you know, great, okay. Um, so you're not going to need to raise money before getting yourself in a position where you're going to have to start large capex programs. Um, so all good on, 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 the, on the finance side of things. Can I just ask about, you mentioned there, permits uh, being expensive. Um, have you, are you fully permitted for everything you need? What are the outstanding permits on, on the projects? No, we're not fully permitted yet. Um, so we have, we have the, the first major permit that you need in Bosnia is the exploitation permit. Mm -hmm. um, the exploitation permit itself is made up of, of four or five other approvals. Yeah. Um, the, the, the longest lead time one in there is what they call the environmental permit. We have been told uh, that the committee members are submitting their reports or have submitted their reports and that the Ministry of Environment and Tourism uh, will be issuing that permit. Obviously, COVID-19 is affecting everything, so I wouldn't be surprised if it drags over. However, um, that is the big, the big sort of hurdle for us. Um, we'll then make our application for urban planning uh, and, uh, and then our final application for our exploitation permit, which is essentially a mining license at Via Vacha. So that covers the Via Vacha plant area and the Via Vacha pit. Um, it does not cover Rippertsa, which is still a prime asset. And the reason for that is we're still doing exploration at Rippertsa. Um, Via Vacha, we have drilled it out and we can get the exploitation from that. But the beauty of getting the exploitation on Via Vacha early is that because Rippertsa is on the same concession, it actually gives you a 30-year tenure on Rupert's itself. So that license becomes secure for us, um, which is why we've, we've pushed the Via Vacha permits early. We expect that once we are able to have the public hearing, and at the moment we can't have a public meeting for the uh, Via Vacha exploitation, uh, that, you know, we, we would reasonably now expect that to happen uh, in May. Um, but, but again, with the restrictions around people movement, restrictions around gatherings of people, I can't guarantee that at, at the moment, but I'm still confident that, that that can be achieved. And we are looking at potentially just doing that public meeting via a webinar. Okay, okay. The second, the, the, then we have to basically repeat that to a certain extent for Rupitza. We are already working and are nearly ready to submit our environmental application for Rupitza. And then we'll go through the urban planning and then eventually the, the mining. What, what's so nearly mean? In a second. 
was uh, nearly. I think we'll have the draft to be reviewed Monday or Tuesday. Oh, right. Next okay. Week. Okay. No, so no. That, that, that kind of nearly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so, the, so we expect to have both exploitation permits um, by October, November. Um, the uh, we th- we then need to basically submit our feasibility work um, to apply for the main mining project, which is your fed sector your your permit to opt to to commence construction. Um, now that requires basically a feasibility study to be done. Um, we're working on that at the moment with Ozenko, uh, primarily out of Toronto, um, and we should have that ready at the end of the year. Uh, one other question was uh, sent in by someone actually, which was, what's the status on additional land and claims? Which is thing you did touch upon it earlier. And I am um, going to be re- deliberately very vague on this. <laughs> okay, that's not your style, Paul. <laughs> it's not. It's not my style. But um, for those who know my share registry, um, will maybe understand why. Um, we are working with government. Uh, to go through a process of maybe seeing a new public invitation for uh, additional concessions. Um, uh, But uh, that is a competitive process. uh, And obviously, we're not willing to sort of give away where we're sitting in that process right now. Okay, fair fair enough. So you, you, I guess at the moment, things are a little bit up in the air in terms of timing how long this COVID nineteen strings things from the out, s- but you expect this year. Yeah, from the on the on the new concessions, are probably up in the air. I think internally, we know exactly where we are with that. Okay. Um, certainly, in in terms of the project development cycle, you know, the first thing we've got to do is find the periphery of the deposit, which we haven't done yet. Right. Um, we are drilling at the moment. We visually we haven't seen any new assay results back in as yet, but we are visually very. Um, pleased with what we're seeing mm-hmm. um, in that drill core. Um, if we defer the PFS by a couple of months, I don't think it's going to affect the critical path of the project at all. What I want to do is make sure that I know that I've got the best mineral resource estimate possible that's being used for for formulation of that PFS. In the meantime, that doesn't stop us doing all of the metallurgical work, all of the geotechnical work, hydrogeological, uh, the environmental marketing studies and everything else that we that, that form part of that. Right. So you, when we talked earlier, you said obviously this has been a, a quite a useful period in the sense that you're taking care of housekeeping, all of those kind of reassessing costs, reassessing the numbers, uh, the, the plan, the work plan, as it were. Um, so that yep. that's great. What's actually happening in the field in terms of drilling? Because you love you love drilling, right? No one loves drilling more than I you. Do. Yeah. So what's happening in the field? How many rigs have you got out? How many more to come? I uh, until yesterday I had five rigs drilling. I've now got four. Okay. Um, I've had to to, to revolve uh, one of our drill crews uh, who are based overseas, and we'll get another drill crew coming in. Um, I've got all of those rigs uh, on Ripita, uh either testing the western extents, testing the eastern extents, or the southern extents. I haven't moved into the north yet, right? Because the north is steep, and I learnt a, mis- a lesson from last year trying to put a drill rig on a steep icy track. 
um, and Druids are subject to gravity. <laughs> right. I think you're painting a picture. Sure about I that. understand. I understand. Yeah. Um, and so we've decided to play it safe on the north, but we will be in there within about five or six weeks. Right. So then t- and talk through just a little bit of detail because you've been doing up until now quite shallow drilling in terms of the, yeah. the, the ore body. You, again, have described going a little bit deeper and, and coming up with some interesting results. Yeah, we, we'd always seen uh, an almost an eastern boundary to the deposit, you know, ever from that second drill hole that we drilled in 2017 that missed. And every time throughout 2018 and 19, every time we went too far to the east, we hit nothing. We'd typically been drilling down to about 300, 330 metres. Mm-hmm. Um, we brought in a very good structural geo um, called Brett Davis. He convinced me to step further to the east and drill a much deeper hole. Um, and we did that late last year. We got down to about 390 metres and there was, you know, 25 metres of high-grade mineralisation. Um, we're now testing different theories that we've been able to look at that, look at some other holes, look at the lithology. We've done some geochemical domaining. Um, we've reinterpreted our gravity assays. We've uh, re-looked at our IP work and we've actually come up with a different theory around what is going on here in terms of depositation and the role that some of the structural faults are playing in that depositation um and that is now shaping a lot of the the exploration work that we're doing that shaped the locations of the 29 drill pads that we just had approved um certainly in early results we've seen visually would suggest that uh you know that reinterpretation is paying off um and we we're going to have to do a lot more drilling okay. there's no doubt about it um i need to get more rigs on site um uh to do that i've just i've actually employed 10 people in january i think i've uh, since january i'm the only company in bosnia that's employing right now um uh i need new technicians to work in the core shed i need new geologists to go out there and orientate core um, you know, we're expanding our exploration program pretty aggressively right now. Um, we've allocated additional funding to it, um, which means we've cut costs elsewhere to try and be able to, to do that. Okay, so you, you've got the money to be able to do that. Um, in terms of communication, I know you've got quite a good setup there, but you are you going to be regularly updating us on the, the drill results, assays thereof? Um, When's the next set of data we can expect to look at? When we first listed, um, you know, being conscious of our continuous disclosure obligations Mm. and with the first holes being so material, um, we used to release holes as they came back from the lab. Um, And, uh, you know, we try to turn them around. As soon as we got them back, we try to have a release out within about 48 hours. Mm. Now we're sort of looking more along section lines and we're looking at each, each of these holes in terms of what they mean for the broader deposit uh, and our understanding structurally. So whilst I don't have any holes to release right now, um, you know, I'm not going to be releasing every hole as it comes back in. I'm going to be releasing them so that I can put them into a context okay. that investors understand. Okay. Can I, I just want to come back to the numbers just briefly if I may. So, um, can you give me an idea of who is in this? Because again, you referenced it there. You've got some people in here um, 
perhaps don't want you saying too much right now, but who are the big names that we would recognize as shareholders in there? And what's the, what's the retail split in this? Uh, look, I think our retail split, I think of our registry, about 25% is retail. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, about 40, um, 40% is institutional. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest is, is fundamentally um, management. But in that institutional um, is Sandfire Resources. Uh, so Sandfire are an Australian copper producer. They have the, uh, the super high-grade uh, Degrassa uh, deposit in Western yeah. Australia. Yeah. Um, Sandfire came into the registry on IPO. Um, uh, since then, they've, in- they've increased their holding from about 7% to a little over 16 Um uh, Why? In addition to that, what, have, what's what's their plan? What's their game plan? Any, do you do you know what it is? I could probably give you their their mobile number. You can ask them. Oh, um, sweet! Uh, look, I, I think um, <laughs> <laughs> they uh, you know they've uh, they yeah you know, Degrissa is a mine with a you know with a limited mine life at the moment. Uh, I think they're probably looking for you know not only a, an investment. And I don't know whether we we are an investment or there is broader ambitions. Um, so, and what what are the, what are the rules uh, on that? Certainly, they've done they've done well at their investment. Yeah, they have. So, what are the rules on the ASX with regards to ownership? I mean, what happens at nineteen point nine? Well, it's irrelevant because we're a British company listed on the LSE as well. So, it's okay. the British rules that protects apply. you. So it's twenty nine point nine percent. And this one's a question sent in. Well, a couple of questions sent in. I don't actually understand it, if I'm honest. Uh, but uh, Milos seems to get a lot of uh, coverage here. It's uh, what about bonus shares for Milos now? <laughs> is that an in joke or something that we need to not to talk about? I think what you've got to understand is in Bosnia, um, relationships are everything. Um, you know, amongst your staff, amongst whatever. Milos's skill. Um, you know, he's a, a former Bosnian lawyer who who fled Bosnia. Um, during the war, has returned to Bosnia, um, has a, um, a sporting background and was a professional sportsman in, in a non-professional era, but you know what I mean. Um, he's got a lot of relationships and Milos spends a lot of time nurturing those relationships with the local community, with government, and he's been absolutely instrumental in the success of the company. Um, we also recognise that for our equity holders to do well, we need to deliver on those permits yeah. because my perception and it's my perception matt is that the equity markets are looking at bosnia as a jurisdiction and going well we've never seen a public company build a mine in bosnia before and we don't really right. understand the process yeah and we want to see these guys deliver before we're all gonna you yeah. know come into the stock and you know at the end of the day i've got to raise nearly 200 million dollars of project finance capital um you know, in the next 12 months. Um, I want to do that at the lowest cost of capital possible. Um, I'm also a significant shareholder in the company. So, you know, there's a, there's a selfish aspect to that. Um, Milos is the only person, I believe, you know, who in the company right now that has the ability to make those permits happen as quickly as possible. Yes. The ability to do that has been impacted by the current COVID crisis. Um, but we we uh, we recognise Milos's value to the company, value to the shareholders of the company. 
Um, and we set some performance rights for him, which, uh, you know, were reflective of the value that we would, that he would add uh, in that process. Now it is, it is questionable as to whether some of the time conditions that were set um, in those performance conditions will be able to be meet, met. Um, I don't think that's Milos's fault. I don't think it's, it's you know, COVID-19 is definitely not because Milos ate a bat. Um, somebody else ate a bat. Um, <laughs> so, uh, we will, we will, we will look at that as a board, um, and, and reflect on that in the interest of shareholders. I'll, uh, I'll put that as a as a possible yes. <laughs> I also write the word bat down. Okay, good. Um, interesting, interesting. Now, okay, so th th that's great. So management is is sitting on thirty five percent. You were a significant shareholder you, you, yourself. Are you? Is that because you started off with all of the shares as a private company, or have you been investing in each of these rounds? Uh, I had invested in, uh, well, in terms of the original acquisition was, was obviously cash. Uh, and then I bought shares in the first seed round, so pre-IPO. Right. Uh, I haven't invested in, in subsequent rounds um, for the simple reason uh, our corporate governance procedures make it almost impossible for me to buy shares. Right. Okay. And I mean, how much do you... I'm always subject to material inside information. Right. So... So how, do, how does it, how does this work? I mean, how do you remunerate yourself? Because you're, you're a big shareholder, obviously, you, you believe in the company and you're, you're building it up. It's great. But are you also paying yourself big? Or are you taking options? I mean, what, what does it look like for, for you and, and the rest of the management team? Um, so for running the company for the uh, almost two years pre-IPO, uh, I was paid in options. So I do have some options in the company. Um, the board uh, awarded me some performance rights last year. Um, some of those have been awarded. Some of them I've still got to earn. Um, I take a, a salary, which I think is reflective of a junior mining company, um, you know, a company that's of our size. Um, look, for me, you know, my payday here is equity. Um, it is getting the share price up. Yeah, like I, I, so, I, I don't think you're going to. I'm not that we have I'm had many thoroughly complaints. Thoroughly aligned. You're thoroughly aligned. Okay, good. <laughs> you, 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 and all the CEOs in the world. Good, um, except for the ones who aren't. Um, no, I don't. I don't think you're getting any complaints from shareholders because your performance is there. The share price appreciation is there. That's how shareholders make their money. Okay, um, you know, and as long as things proceed like that, I don't think anyone ever complains. It's when the share prices go down that I think people, that becomes a under fine scrutiny as, as it should be. Um, okay, I wanted to get on to polymetallic ore bodies are complex. They, in my experience in the past, I'm not a geologist, just a banker who's experienced some nightmare situations. Is Could you describe for us what is the process you've got to go through to be able to work out if you can economically mine it? And what do you focus on first? Where, where do you spend your time, effort and money? The mining itself is very easy. All you're mining in tons. It doesn't matter what's in the tons. Mm -hmm. Sticking in the plant, it does there matter. There you what's go, in the right there. That's what I want. Right. So what we have is very clear zonation across the deposit. 
where in some parts of the deposit we see higher precious metals, other parts of the deposit we see lower base and um, and more copper. Um, you know, barite is fairly consistent across across the deposit. Um, we've also the majority of the deposit is barite hosted, but we've got zones of mineralization that are very pyritic. Um, uh, so it's it's an unusual one, and it means that to make sure that that what's what you know tons we stick into that plant every single hour of every single day, we need to be certain that the recoveries that we're kind of assuming in all of our studies today can be achieved on every hour of every day and every day of the year. To do that, we have to do a lot of work, um, a lot of geochemical work, a lot of lock cycle tests. Um, we have spent, I think today, we'd be close to 500,000 pounds on metallurgical test work right. today. And I think I'm only about halfway through the program. Um, We've been using Wardell Armstrong down in Cornwall, yeah. um, you know, Phil King. Uh, we've also got a, a, an internal consulting geologist called, um, metallurgist called Len Holland. Um, Len uh, has probably built 50 flotation plants and what he doesn't know isn't worth knowing. Um, uh, you know, these guys uh, with, with Graham and, and under Graham's direction are really making great inroads into the metallurgy here. Um, and with Ozenko also providing some inputs, I think when you see the PFS, there's going to be a few surprises there in terms of changes in recoveries between um, the, the scoping study and the PFS, particularly around the precious metals. Um, yeah, we had, we assumed reasonable recoveries on the precious metals in the past, but a lot of the gold in particular was going into tails. Right. Um, we'll be doing a lot of work to how we might be able to get that that maximum. Well, that's really interesting because I, I guess the numbers that are on um, looks like page five of your most recent presentation. The economics, I guess, are coming out of the PFS, which is an NPV eight of uh, nine hundred sixteen million IRR of one hundred and seven percent, with a modest capex of around just under one hundred eighty million US. Um, you're intimating to me there that you think the feasibility studies have shown you a way to improve those economics. We are looking at ways of extracting gold out of pyrites. Right. Um, we're looking at now at, at changing the sequential order of the concentrates themselves, potentially creating a separate copper concentrate. Um, you do, the, the, we've done this already. We, we put a release out in January <clears throat> on the copper con. We've created a separate copper concentrate. It's sucked out a lot of the silver into the copper con. You get a much better payability on silver in a copper con than you do even in a in a uh, in a lead con. Right. Um, and of course, you get a high payability on gold as well. Um, that means that our total recoveries are probably looking a bit better, but our payabilities are looking a lot better. Um, we're also looking at. You know, we have this intermediate waste product which we create in our flow sheet, which is just a pyrite concentrate, and from that we extract the barite. That that pyrite concentrate, you know, has two and a half grams a ton of gold in it. Um, we wouldn't mind having that um, if we can. So, um, you know, we are looking at doing some. We're, we're doing some test work at the moment to try and get that gold recovery economically. 
um, and get those concentrates to be, you know, as marketable as possible. Um, you know, what you would have noticed in our scoping study, you know, we talked about total costs on a per tonne mine basis of being a little under $100 a tonne, quite high. Um, 34 or $35 a tonne of that was smelter costs and deductions. Um, so, you know, where we've had to, we've got high TCs and RCs, um, you know, we've looked at transportation costs, insurances, handling costs at ports, rehandling on, on inland shipments. Um, but we've also got some deleterious in there. Uh, and so what we're also working on is how do we get those concentrates cleaner, get those deleterious out of there. And, you know, working with the likes of Len Holland, and Phil King, of the guys at Azenko, I mean, it's the A, it's the A team um, in terms of metallurgy. And we're putting the money into it. We're putting the time into it. We started our network more than twelve months ago, eighteen months ago. Right. Um, we've now done, <coughs> I think, for memory, eighteen lock cycle tests. Um, we've just done done a whole pile of mineralogy. Um, Again, looking at, you know, where in the zonation of the deposit, where various metals are sitting with the minerals, making sure that's all the same. This is all, this investment in time and money into metallurgy will definitely pay off for us. I'll take that as a yes as well then, to the original yeah, question. Yes. Thank yeah. you, Sorry. good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, we got there, we got there. Right. Um, you can just tell me to shut up, Matt. I wouldn't do that. I'm too polite. Um, okay, so <laughs> so things so, so things have been moving along at a reasonable pace. I mean, to get to a BFS, you're telling me, did I hear end of this year? A feasibility by uh, complete by yeah, the end of this we're, year? We're, yeah, definitive feasibility by the end of the year is what we're hoping to achieve. Are you might gonna... slip into, into into Q1, but okay, it is the still on track for that. Okay, so th that means you're already having conversations with strategics. That's what that means, isn't it? Man, I'm building a team internally that can do it. Great. But, uh, more, more than that, more than that, I'm more than just building a team. I'm, excuse right. Well, I'm I hope, I hope you get there. You're, you're going down with something. I just had a bat for lunch and I'm just got this cough. <laughs> you got something in your teeth there, just, just there. <laughs> yeah. It might be just a bit of a bit of a wing. Right. Um, you know. People talk about, you know, the ability to take a project through mm. exploration, pre-development into production as though it's a, it's a purely technical exercise. And, it, and it's, it's not. There's plenty of people out there that we can hire under the, under the direction of Graham Hill, who's, you know, built seven mines. I mean, the guy knows how to do it. Um, who, can, who can take this and turn it into a mine. What you've got to do, and particularly in jurisdictions like Bosnia, which don't really have an established mining industry, it's more about organisational culture. And this is what we're doing now, is we're spending a lot of time defining what the values of our company are going to be, how we expect our staff to exercise those values in everything we do, and how we expect the values of the company to be projected outwards into our local community. And that that piece of work is not something that you can do in three months it's something that you start 12 18 months out and you gradually do it and you and you compensate people you know you put it in their performance reviews 
on how you want them to to behave and if they exercise those values. If you do that, number one, you don't have any accidents on site because you build that safety culture straight away. You get you get people looking out for their mates. You know, if if I say to my staff, you know, all of you are going to get a twenty five euro bonus at the end of the month if there are no accidents this month, if there's no safety incidents, all of them will make sure that each and every one of them are operating safely because they all want that 25 euros, right? doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it, it's, it's indicative of how you change those behaviors. And so we're looking at this, not just in terms of can we, can we do this from an engineering perspective? Yes, we can bring in a good EPCM contractor. We can bring in a good mining contractor. We can do all of that stuff. Many companies have come from our position and done that. But we've got an opportunity with a first mover advantage in a jurisdiction like Bosnia, uh, in a region like the Balkans, where, you know, this there's some pretty prolific deposits around. Um, to really sort of take this company from being, you know, we'll basically take this project forward until someone comes and dangles a check in front of us. To, look, we could probably partner up with someone else in the region. There's plenty of big groups in the region that are operating um, that we could partner with uh, and bring it forward, or we could try and do it our own. But the most important criteria for success is not just in the technical evaluation and engineering of the project. But the most important criteria for success will be how we build ourselves internally, um, culturally, and in the way we integrate with our local community and our natural environment. Uh, and if think if we can do that, then that's going to lay the platform for us to be able to take this thing forward successfully. Um, all of the other work that you, you know doing in terms of metallurgy and hydrogeology, uh, engineering studies, that you know that's all science that can be dealt with. That's all science. That, that's all science that a lot of people get wrong. Um, I, I think the you know there's a great story. And thanks for running through that today. Um, I, I would love you to give us a bit more colour on where this 200 million comes from, though, just as we before we wrap up, have you had discussions? Are people sniffing around you or is this still just a little bit early? I, you're still working at the metallurgy, for instance. Look, in terms of my background is project finance. So, um, uh, you know, I have a fairly clear view in my mind as to what the structure of finance will look like for a project with these sort of cash flow profiles. Um, we do need to see the PFS and, and, and reshape our thinking around the cash flows around the PFS um, when that is complete. But I think even before it's complete, we'll have a pretty good idea. For the most part, I think the majority of funding for this project will come through traditional, um, uh, you know, senior secured project finance. Um, now that will probably come from either Parastate or, or uh, similar banks, um, uh that operate in the region um you know ebrd is a big funder of projects in bosnia for example they have an office there uh we also know that there are a number of other banks that have expressed a desire to, pro to finance projects in the balkans um we already have started working on the legal basis for perfection of security so we are thinking ahead on that on that regard okay the other aspect is that we've got a very very low royalty on the project so the state royalty even though we increased it recently uh, voluntarily with the state, it, it is still very low and it works out at about 0.85% on an NSR basis. There's an opportunity there that we could potentially look at, you know, a royalty sale or partial royalty sale um, or even some streaming to try and minimise the amount of equity dilution if we feel that the equity is still undervalued, as it obviously currently is. 
Okay, and, and sorry, I just because it has been a bad line on, on, on occasion, um, all the way from Cheltenham, um, is it, you, you talked there about a, the PFS, a pre-feasibility study. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I think. That would give me enough, that would give me enough, PFS itself would give me enough of an idea of what those project cash flows would look like for me to start putting the structure around that project financing package. But no one, fi- no one's going to finance so you off the back of a PFS. You're going to have to get the feasibility done because no, 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 we will. Yeah, obviously we'll 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 complete the feasibility. But I would expect that we'd be fairly advanced in discussions with groups even before that final definitive feasibility is complete. And the timing for that is? Uh, we're still thinking December. Okay, so you're going very quickly from PFS pre-feasibility study through to a DFS because you're doing yep. you've done most of the work for the FS. Or are you going to skip that stage and go straight to DFS? No, we will have done a lot of the work for the uh, PFS that will be used in the DFS. And our our permit, our main mining project permit, requires us to have completed all the front engineering design work. Got it. That's where my confusion was was stemming from. Got it. Understood. some, Some of that is actually being worked on right now. So there's a lot of uh, concurrent activity there in terms of those those studies, which again the institutional guys will need to see, especially at 200 million bucks, right? Beautiful, Paul. Yeah. Thank you so much for today. Uh, I'm glad I could uh, cheer you up while you're sitting there by yourself in the office, and <laughs> someone to talk to. No problem. And thanks for sharing thanks. your story. Great story. We've not heard it before. Um, you've got a lot of um, shareholders out there very pleased with what you're doing. Uh, so it was a pleasure to be part part of uh, well, part of telling that story um, uh, with you. Um, so why don't you stay in touch with us? Let us know how you're getting on. Whenever the sort of next big moment is, and uh, we'd be delighted to take that call. Thank you very much. Great, thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website cruxinvestor.com, and of course our YouTube channel Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.